That's a tough act to follow right there. That was good. Thank you, class. Thank you, Sunday school teachers, for sharing that with us. That's our future. We have a bright future based on that. So, appreciate that investment. Well, good morning to everybody. We, um, Today's Communion Sunday, so we will be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll take a little break from the gloom and doom of the book of Revelation, if you don't mind. And um, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. We will actually complete chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so this chapter, chapter 3, is a very popular chapter, and it's about the times and the seasons. There's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. There was even a popular song that quoted part of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes word for word. So it's about cycles of history. And Solomon is addressing uh, life, and he's addressing the hard things of life here. And he's, he's thinking big thoughts, he's asking hard questions, and he's looking at everything under the sun from a secularist point of view. It's, kind of a, it's a challenging book because here you have King Solomon uh, talking through most of it and reasoning through the point of view as if there is nothing... Um, that all we have is what's under the sun, meaning that there's nothing divine, there's nothing out there, there's no meaning, there's no purpose beyond what, what we have uh, within our own touch, with our own sphere of existence. And so if that's true, if this is all there is and there's nothing out there that, that helps us or gives us any kind of meaning, then it bears on us and uh, it, it has an impact on how we think and how we live. If there is something out there, the same is true. If there is something out there, then everything that we do has meaning and purpose. So if you, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, it's going to affect the way we work, the way we play. It's going to affect our morality, our values, our understanding of dignity of life. It will affect our motiv- motivation for why we do and don't do things. Uh, it affects whether we care or not. So our beliefs and our values take a toll on our actions and our decisions. And so there's a position here of the secularist which says that this earth and this world is all there is and it's all that there ever will be. But we also know that Solomon sometimes take the Takes, he surprises us and he takes a position of a biblical worldview. So what he does is he looks at these conclusions that we have and he basically carries them out to their logical uh, conclusion. So if we are materialists or secularists and we don't believe in God, what does that mean for us in the end? And then if we do believe in God, what does that mean for us and how will it affect us in our lives? So in the middle of this chapter, Solomon basically says, you know, life can be hard. He acknowledges that. But there's a God that makes all things beautiful in His time. And just that, if you just take that truth alone, look how it will impact your life. 
that it, it, it informs you and transforms you. If God makes everything beautiful in, a t- in its time, and we believe in God, then we know immediately there's going to be times where we have to be patient. There's going to be times where we're not going to know everything and we have to trust God. There's going to be times where you know, our path looks obstructed, but we can believe and trust that in the end, all things are pointed or there's this great momentum or trajectory of motion that will result in the glory of God. So our beliefs and our worldview plays a big difference in our everyday life. Now Solomon talks about there's a time uh, to plant. There's a time to harvest. There's a time to build up. There's a time to tear down. There's a time even to live and there's a time to die. He talks about the eternity. All in this chapter, the eternal longings in man's heart. And it's those longings that often cause us to go on these pursuits to find, well, is there meaning? Is there something beyond this life? Am I here for a purpose? And so we we have um, masses of humanity in every generation that go on all kinds of pursuits to find out, why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? Now, they don't always wind up in what I would call the right position or with the right belief system. But it is a sign that there is there's a longing in our hearts for something more. A lot of times we draw these conclusions. There's got to be something more in this life than what I'm seeing or experiencing. And the biblical worldview would say there is. <laughs> there's something way more. There's a, the, uh, the world is, is um, you know, vivid. It's filled with life upon life upon life in the spiritual realms that we cannot see. It's very, very active. So he's, he's contemplating all these complexities of life, and he just kind of draws a conclusion. Since God's exists, since all things will be beautiful in their time, enjoy life, do good, and fear God. And that's kind of how a little bit of our motto here as believers is that we want to enjoy life because there is meaning and purpose and God does exist. And, and frankly, the life that we have is God's gift to us. The life that I have is God's gift to me and I can choose what I'm going to do with it. But it can be a wonderful, beautiful gift. And I, so we can enjoy life and we are to do good. Because God is a good God and He's a holy God and we want to be like Him. And that the whole creation and the harmony of how things operate are based on righteousness, justice, and the goodness of God. And of course, we want to fear God and always keep that, that attitude in our lives um, alive in our minds. So Solomon wrestles with real hard questions of life. And he's wrestling with big things in this chapter. And the point is, uh, if you look at life and your existence from a secularist point of view, or if you look at it from a biblical point of view, there's a huge difference. In everything we do, everything we think, all of our motives, our attitudes, our perceptions, our presuppositions, there's a huge difference. And so we, we can't pretend they're just the same thing. Believing in God changes how you sleep. Uh, it, it changes your understanding of food. changes your understanding of love and romance. 
changes your understanding of relationships, changes your understanding of morality, changes your understanding of evil, changes your understanding of joys and hardships. Everything uh, uh, changes our understanding of human dignity, changes our understanding of life and death. So that brings us to our text for today because those are the things that he's going to examine for us and that is the idea of human dignity as uh, opposed to are we just uh, another form of animal? Are we just a higher form or the highest form of animal and beast? Or are we something special? And what about death and what happens to man after he dies? So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 16 through 22. The first few verses are about justice. I'm going to read them, but we're not going to touch them this morning. We're going to catch those in the next chapter. They're very important, and, and we will come back to them, but not this morning. But I do want to read them because they're in our text. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So the first two verses about justice are great questions and basically Solomon's saying, oh, wait a minute, we have justices and courts, we have all these systems in place and how come when I look in these systems, I find injustice there? That's a good question, isn't it? We'll get to that some other time. But in the, in the verses at hand, Solomon, um, he's, he's kind of thinking through about what he observes in life as he looks at beasts and he looks at man and he's kind of comparing how they live and how they go about life. And he says, you know, there's a sense in which we're we're just the same thing. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God's testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. It's an interesting word. That word tests means uh, it's the same word... um, in the Hebrew that has to do with throwing the chaff up in the air. And so what settles is the grain. That's the real thing. That's what you want to keep. But the other stuff blows away that you don't want. And he's saying, I see that when man is tested, when when he's tested to see if if he's different from the animals, I see that really when he's cornered and gets in certain positions, he just acts exactly like the beasts do. So some think some men respond to things differently. You, know, you get into kind of the, the fight and flight, uh, fight or flight um, instincts that we have. Uh, some people, for whatever reason, seem to have gotten two doses of flight. 
Anything that happens, they're gone. Other people have two doses of fight. Doesn't matter what, they're going to fight you over everything. I prefer a mix. I want, I want to get in there and get the cheap shot and then fight, then run, so I can get kind of the best of both worlds. But are we really the same? Is that, what, is that the conclusion? Is that true? First, he says we, we, it's true because we share the same breath, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Now, of course, he's speaking from a secular worldview here. There's no difference in man and beast. And it's true. We do share the same air. We breathe the same air. And the fact of the matter is, when we die and we're buried in the ground, you know, our bodies, my body will, if you buried me right beside my dog at the same time, our bodies would, uh, we shared the same air here, and our bodies would decompose in the same way. So in that sense, they're, what advantage does man have over beast in the end? Now Solomon lived in the 900 BCs and um, evolution didn't come until the 19th century. So he didn't know about the opposable thumb argument, right? The opposable thumbs. See, the, uh, that gives humans a great advantage because we can grip things. Our thumbs in proportion to our fingers... When we got smart and began to study these things, now monkeys can swing a lot better than we can because they have the longer fingers, but we have shorter fingers with the thumbs, so our dexterity and the way we can manipulate and manage things gives us a tremendous advantage, not to mention our our, uh, IQ and our ability to communicate and problem solve and uh, plan and everything like that. That gives us a tremendous advantage over... um, the beasts. But, you know, the secularist world, you might say, well, that doesn't really even count because we all end up in the same place anyway. What good does one person have an advantage over another? Animals have advantages over other animals, but what does it really get us? We share the same air, and then we share the same ground. We don't have any control over these things. Now, of course, we know scripturally that we are different. Again, the impact of what you believe makes such a big difference. Scripture teaches us that we have as human beings dignity because we are created in the image of God. That truth alone changes how we are to treat all of our fellow, fellow man. Uh, that truth alone, if lived out in purity, would change the face and the scope of the world and the paper and the news reporters would need to look for different jobs if all they're going to do is report bad news because if we treated one another like this with this kind of respect and dignity if we really believed it then it would change the face of the earth but he's thinking these things through and we need to think these things through and that kind of thinking about well is there any difference between man and beast leads him to a really deep theological question or really existential question and that is, well, what happens to man after he dies anyway? We don't really know. Does he go down like the animals, or does he go up? Do we know these kind of things? Verse 20, all go to one place. They just go into the ground, dust to dust. All return. Is he right? Well, he's right in the sense that we do return to the dust. And that's in Scripture too. We are buried in the ground. Ashes to ashes, dust 
to dust. All flesh goes to the same place. There's nothing really spiritual about that. But then he poses another question. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now he's talking about spiritual matters. Not just material matters. He's contemplating if there's a spirit of man, is there a spirit of man? And if there is, what becomes of it after he dies? Is it like the beast? Or does he ascend to a place that is above the sun? Verse 22, I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he's saying we can't know, so we just make the best of it. But can we know? Can we know what happens to man after he dies? This is an ancient question. It's a a question that we will all answer or ask or we should all ask. And basically, what happens to a man after he dies? The truth of the matter is, if we knew the answer to that question, that's another one of those truths or knowledge that would change the way we live very, very radically. Just simply put. In fact, there's a new series out. I I saw it advertised recently uh, called Surviving Death. I think it's on Netflix. I I haven't watched the series. I've... I don't really know anything about it, but because I happened to be uh, preaching on this today and I saw the advertisement yesterday, I watched a preview and it looks like it's a lot of testimonies of people's contemplations about there has to be life after death. There's got to be something out there and it's based on mostly experiences um, and it seemed like it was leaning towards reincarnation. I don't, again, I didn't watch it. I don't know anything about it. But just in a, like a one-minute preview, you could see this, this growing frustration because there are people who are saying, yes, there is life after death. And then there are other people who are saying, if we could just prove it, but we can't prove it because it's, it's out of the realm of science. And how do you prove your experience? And there's this, this terrible frustration and this angst that it can create. It'd be nice to know for sure, but can we know for sure? Well, can we know for sure? How has man answered this very, very important question through the ages? Let me give us just three options that are out there. There are more, but these are probably, I think, the most popular. The first way that some groups might answer this question is they say, well, basically Solomon's right, it's annihilation. There's absolutely nothing that happens to man. Just like the beast. He lives his life. And then when he dies, he absolutely ceases to exist. There is nothing about him that carries on after his moment of death. This life is all you get. It's all there is. And when you die, you die. Now this is a, a, this is a popular option, but it's, not, um, it's the least popular in the sense that the least amount of people in real life, worldwide, believe this. There's not that many people that ascribe to this. And another one that is more popular is the idea, some will say, well, yeah, there's life after death, and it's reincarnation. And you have the whole belief system tied into reincarnation. What happens is, according to this system, 
of belief is that you die, but then you come back to life in another form. And you, the, you're, you're on this trajectory of becoming a better and better being. And so if you don't live a perfect life, when you die, you come back and you take on another flesh because you're a spirit and you have to take on another form of, you, uh, you have to be embodied. So you take on another body and then you live that life again, hopefully with the idea of lots of trial and error and that you will become a better and better person. You don't just get a second chance. You get a third chance and a fourth chance and a hundred and a thousand chances. You get as many chances as it takes for you to finally become uh, this somewhat of a perfect um, existence in being. Uh, If you don't live a good life, you'll pay the price because you will come back as something lesser. If you were a dirty, stinking rat in real life, you might come back as a dirty, stinking rat in your reincarnated life kind of thing. So we can be reincarnated down the chain or we can be reincarnated up the chain of, of uh, goodness there. The goal is to eventually reach nirvana where you just um, you become one with the universe and everything is absolutely impersonal. You're one with an impersonal uh, pantheistic God that, that has no particular identity. Uh, this is very, very popular course um, with Hindus and Buddhists. Now, here's another option, and this one you might be more familiar with, and I'm going to call it the weighted scale option, or the weighted scale on the day of judgment option. And uh, Muslims believe in this, and this is a, a form of some Christian belief. Some Christians believe in a form of this. In fact, it was my belief before I was a Christian and thought I was a Christian. Before I was a Christian, thought I was a Christian in my head, the way things worked is you have good and bad on a scale, and if I can just do enough good, God's going to let me in. Now, what changed that thinking for me was the truth of the gospel. When I realized how much of a sinner I really was, and I stood no chance of getting to heaven on my own, that had me crying out for mercy. However, so this is a belief that one day we're going to stand before, depending on your religion or whatever, you're going to stand before some higher being, some deity, our good deeds will be placed on a scale, our bad deeds will be placed on a scale, and depending on what side goes up higher, you either go to heaven, some form of heaven, or you go to some form of hell and you face uh, eternal punishment, depending on which outweighs which. What happens if you stand before this deity and your scales are perfectly balanced? The Christians have a hard time answering that that believe in this system. What happens? Where do you go? Well, some Christians would say, well, then you just go to purgatory because that's, that's, that's why purgatory exists because then you go there and you make up for any good that, that, where there's a deficit and you sanctify yourself further in that sense. Uh, the Muslims don't really struggle with this because they believe the good outweighs the bad so they'd say, oh, you go to heaven if it was an even split. 
So those are three of the most popular answers uh, given to this very, very important question. And I don't have to tell you that. You know that in real life. I'm sure you might have acquaintances or friends, maybe even loved ones, that hold to some of these. It's not the only option. We haven't gotten to the... It's not the... Um, the fourth option, or the best option that we will get to, by the way, if you're wondering, wait a minute, where is this sermon going? We will close with that, with God's voice and Scripture. But these are popular answers to this question. And they all have problems. The problem with annihilation is, first of all, you are the minority who believe that if you're in that group. And secondly, if you are wrong, you are eternally wrong. I mean, this is a throw, talk about a throw of the dice. When you look at the world and you see so many other people believing in the higher powers and believing in life and death, I mean, there's got to be something to that. So you're, you're, when you're wrong, you are stuck with that decision. It is a terrible gamble there. So that has its own problems. Reincarnation uh, has some merit in the sense that it, it identifies suffering that's one thing good about re, uh, reincarnation is identify suffering. Suffering is real and suffering is not good and you want to escape it. doesn't just say, well, that's just the way it is. Uh, but it also um, recognizes such a thing as the good life and it wants to find the good life and aspires to the good life. But it, that's one of the problems is that it totally depends on good behavior. And we talked about sanctification in Sunday school this morning and you are on your own to sanctify yourself through countless chances of being reincarnated. And you can be reincarnated as an animal, not a human. And I don't know how animals, as an animal, you're supposed to learn from your past mistakes. I mean, it gets kind of hard to track and understand how it could really work in real life. But you're supposed to learn uh, to do better. You don't want to stay away from the bad karma every life that you live. And the hope is that eventually you'll just tire of coming back and doing wrong so much that you'll, you'll finally live a life where you just do everything right and then you will reach nirvana. That's the hope. But that's a pretty thin hope, I think. Because it leaves us to ourselves. I know it's a dismal, uh, it's a dismal belief system for a person like me that realizes that there's no way in the world I would ever on my own be able to reach any kind of sanctification level that would please anybody, honestly. More or less a, some kind of divine being. Uh, the history of civilization, civilization doesn't show that, uh, even with this belief system, that each generation is becoming more and more morally superior than the other. And this has been around a long time. So it kind of defines, uh, defies, I think, the nature of man. And um, so if it's out there, the force is not with me in that sense, helping me along in that. I find it's also very impersonal because there's no one thing that you're trying to please. Like you've attain, if, you, if you've attained this great accomplishment, for what? Then you go out into oblivion in this force. It's like very, very impersonal. It's very... Um, anticlimactic in my opinion. Well, even the weighted scale or the don't spill the beans uh, philosophy of what happens after you die, now that has some serious problems of its own as well. And the reason I say that is because if we have to stand before this supreme being or judge uh, 
ultimate judge of the universe and all our deeds with our, our good and our bad weighed out. And He looks at mine and my good happened to outweigh my bad and He says, oh, then you are welcome into my kingdom. You are welcome into my heaven. Well, that's a big problem because that means that's an, in, that's an unjust judge. Because that doesn't say anything about handling, well, what about my evil deeds? Don't I have to pay any kind of penalty or punish for, punishment for my evil deeds? Judge, are you saying that if I just do a little bit more good than bad, I'm still free to be a free man? And to enter into your heaven so your heaven is filled with people that are just like a little bit better than they are bad? Is that even a place where I would want to be? So the thinking is, if, if you think about it, um, you know, so you watch a bad movie, but you also coach Little League. Uh, you, you drive, you got a speeding ticket for 90, but most of the time you go the speed limit. That's an honorable thing to do. Uh, you stole candy at the store that you really wanted because you had a sweet tooth, but, you, but then you helped an old lady across the street. Uh, you lied to your parents, but then you told them the truth. So that kind of counterbalances things. You purposely ran over your neighbor's cat, but then you feed their dog when they're on vacation. So, you know, that's, that's pretty good. And it all equals out, right? It's like this, this system of how it works. You cheated on your taxes, but you also gave some charitable don- donations. Or you cheated on your first spouse, but on the second spouse you were loyal. So life just has a way of kind of leveling itself out. Is that how it works? Well, let's just think about it. If you get in trouble and you face a judge in a justice system of court, and you've committed a crime, do they take into account the good deeds that you've done, and therefore you're acquitted based on the good. So the good outweighs the bad. So the judge says, yes, you were speeding, you perjured, you lied, you cheated, but I also see some things on your list that are quite admirable. Uh, You you volunteered for some things, and so um, you're free to go. No penalty whatsoever. Now, if we had that kind of justice system, uh, that judge probably wouldn't last very long in a small town because that is not justice. People are not being punished for the crime or the penalty. Think about it in these terms. You kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered an innocent little girl and you get caught red-handed, and you are absolutely guilty, and there's no doubt about it, and you go before the judge, and the judge says, that's a terrible thing you've done. It's a terrible thing you've done. But I see over here that you volunteered for the fire department. I see that you did Toys for Tots and Salvation Army, and you went on missions trips, and you attended church very regularly, and you've, commit, and you've donated a lot of money to very needed people and cancer patients. And when I look at this, you're not a bad person. So you're free to go. Is that how it works in the end? Is that what happens to man when he dies? Well, see, when we break the law in any kind of justice system, it incurs a wrath. And the whole idea is that the penalty has to be, the crime has to be punished. Or justice is not being done. If we just weigh things out and we don't, we don't 
justly uh, pay the crime, then where's the fairness or the justice in any of that? So it really only works if you have a, a crooked judge. One that is not righteous. One that is not holy. Not to mention the fact that while you're in this life, you never get to see the scoreboard. How do you ever know how you're really, really doing other than in your own mind? Maybe what people are telling you, but if you're going to face this judge and he doesn't show you the scoreboard until you're dead, that's pretty risky too, isn't it? So what happens when we die? And I close with this. And we're going to look at a lot. I'm just going to fly through some Scripture because God has revealed to us. God reveals things to us through um, special revelation. He reveals things to us through general revelation. He reveals things to us through the incarnation of His Son who is the Word and lived the Word out. What happens when we die? Well, let's look what God has to say about it and then we can decide what kind of system that we would put the eternal care of our souls into. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27, Just as it is destined for man to die once and after that, to face judgment. And so according to God, all humanity has sinned. All are, have committed crimes that are punishable. And all will stand before Him as the ultimate judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But there's more. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That Christ died while we were still sinners. So something's, be, something's taking place in this universe of good and evil with a righteous judge. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. So you begin to see that the plight of humanity who are all sinners and all fall short. God is doing something on our behalf. Sinners deserve to die but Christ died for them. Christ takes that punishment. Christ takes the hit for the heinous uh, degree of the crime and the evil that has been committed. And we find that the righteous has died in the place of the unrighteous. It's a substitutionary atonement initiated by this great and holy judge, this God. How do we receive this? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by faith you have been for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so then we find out that God offers us this substitutionary atonement by faith. In Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of the good things what we have done, but because of his mercy. And so this salvation isn't this scale of good and evil. It's a gift, it's mercy, it's grace, and it's offered and it's received, it's taken in, it's embraced, or it's rejected. So we as sinners, we deserve to die. We deserve to face and will face God as 
judge and the ultimate judge. But God has brought into our plight and our predicament an offer of grace and offer of mercy whereby all of our evil deeds have indeed been, the penalty has been paid and so justice has been done. And also we can obtain righteousness, that's a perfect righteousness, from Christ who did no evil, committed no crime, broke no law. And it's this terrible, terrible uh, swap. It's great for us. It's the good news, this swap here. It's, it's kind of, God gets the raw end of the deal if, if you want to look at it that way because He takes our punishment, but He gives us Christ's righteousness. There's no fairness about it. It's not about works and deeds. It's about grace. It's about faith. John 1, 12 through 13, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now you can even be in the family of God, not just forgiven, but be a family member. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There's a difference in worldviews right there, right? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. In John 5.24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. We have all these promises from God found in God's Word that tell us what happens to man after you die. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's such a thing as being at home with God. At home with the Lord. And we can't get there from here. With this, we get a new body. This body stays behind. It does stay in the grave. It does stay in the ground. That's where it belongs. So you see how the, the, the narration of our story and, and humanity and how God is woven into it and how God meets it with divine answers. Yes, what we do in this world, the decisions we make absolutely matter. They do count. They are being calculated. They are being computed by a sovereign God who knows these things and we will face Him. And so we have, Scripture gives us this choice, not annihilation or reincarnation. Or the weighted scale system. If you want to go by the weighted scale system, that's not a good ending. Because our salvation and our eternal life and where we ascend when we ascend to heaven is based on faith and grace and the mercy of God. He did it all. And we accept it by faith as His generous gift for us. And the beauty of that is it changes our lives because we don't have to wait until we die, wringing our hands, wondering, did I do enough? God is so gracious to give us the promise of eternal life in His Word. He says, you can know, because when I save you, when I come into your life, you will be different. You will be different. I transform you. You are renewed. You once were dead, and now you're alive. And your eyes will be open. Your brain will operate differently in that you're, you'll have a different affection. You'll have a different sense of morality. A different purpose. Everything changes when God brings us alive to the things of the kingdom. So I guess if you look at it that way as we close, we do have some options. We can do nothing. 
and not respond to the good news, the special revelation that God has given us, and face our Creator, knowing that we're guilty. Or we can surrender and embrace God's truth as true in my life. Yes, I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved, and there's no doubt about it, and we own up to it, and we ask for God's grace and mercy. We ask forgiveness in our lives. Those are the two main options, but there's another option for those. What do you say? Well, what if I've already made that decision? I've already surrendered my life, and I believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior. Well then, first thing we can do is wipe our brow, because that's what I did when I embraced the good news. It's like, I escaped that because of what Christ did for me. But the other thing we can do is we can continually, as we were reminded by Noah this morning in our worship time, just rejoice. Just rejoice. Rejoice that our sins have been forgiven. Rejoice that we already know where we're going. Rejoice that life has meaning, that life has a purpose. Rejoice in this gift of life that God has given us. Rejoice in the communion of the saints. Rejoice in our fellowship meal. Rejoice in the Lord's Supper that we will partake of this morning. All of the good things that God has brought into our life, that's how we can respond. Well, we can live a life of gratitude and we can rejoice. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.